0: is the church? What is the church? It's a very elastic word. Uh, one of our probably most fav- sort of famous Christians uh, is the Vicar of Dibley, uh, played by Dawn French. And uh, there's a quote I-, I read where Dawn French in an interview said, I love going to church. And uh, it goes on. Uh, it's getting harder these days because during the day they're quite often shut. But I can easily find the vicar and get a key and open it up and sit in church for hours. Now, her understanding of church, what is that? It's, it's saying, okay, the church is the building. And there's something aesthetic about being in, in the building. Uh, when people find out that I'm a pastor, they often ask me, where is your church? And they're referring, I think, to bricks and mortar. I am a sort of official curator of this building. I have a strange interest in old buildings and I sort of hang about in them. Um, Or people speak about um, the Church of Scotland or the the Catholic Church, by which they mean the whole denomination. But neither of those uses of the word has much to do with the biblical understanding of church. And so I want to give you a a summary definition of... um, friend of mine, Peter Jensen, he was the dean of Moore College. He's now the Archbishop of Sydney. We'll just put it up there. The church is the gathering of God's people in order to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with one another. I think that's not a bad definition as you try and capture the whole of the Bible. The church is the gathering of God's people in order to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with one another. And this evening I want to look at three things. I want to look at God's aim. I'm going to spend the bulk of our time there. God's activity and God's achievement. And I want to acknowledge the, my debt to a friend, uh, Danny Rolanda, who's uh, been doing a church plant in Lancaster, who, who took this approach. I think it's a very helpful approach. Let's think about God's aim. God's aim has always been to gather a people to himself. God's aim has always been to gather a people to himself. When we we turn to the start of our Bibles, we're given something far more profound than a scientific explanation uh, for the existence uh, of how the world began. It reveals who made the world and why it was made. Something that science can never answer. The universe does not exist because of a random accident. It's made by a purposeful, loving creator, God. And so when you turn back to Genesis, page 4. Yes, we really are going to work our way through the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse uh, 26, page 4 in the church Bibles. And you can see from the beginning, God's purpose was, uh, for us was uh, one of relationships to relate. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is a key section. Notice with me that the very existence and being and purpose of mankind is caught up with the God who made us. Man is made in the image of God. Man of all the creation represents the likeness of God. And this involves both ruling over the rest of creation on behalf of God. And secondly, it means having a unique friendship with God. God that no other animal can enjoy man exists for God man's uniqueness and purpose is bound up with fellowship with God but notice with me that man is created with two sexes in the image of God he created him male and female he created them And that's not just so they can fulfill the command to uh, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 2 makes this clear that just as man was created to be in relationship with God, men and women are created to have relationship with each other. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Or verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Now this might seem a long way from a discussion about church to talk about the creation of man and the creation of marriage. But this is the canvas upon which everything that the Bible has to say about church is painted. That God is a God of relationships. That we were made for relationship with Him and with each other. And so we can only really answer the question, who is God? by answering that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing from eternity in relationship. And we can only answer the question, who am I, by saying that we were made for relationship with God and for each other. And so if you wake up one morning and ask yourself the question, what am I here for? What's my life about? The answer from Genesis is that your life is about this, relating to other people and to God. That is the reason for which you were made now, if you read on chapter three of Genesis, you know that the purpose of God apparently is thwarted by sin. The perfect relationships are ruined by man 's rebellion against God and his words, and in chapters three to eleven you see the man and the woman thrown out of the Garden of Eden, cut off from friendship with God, and the beginning of the battle of the sexes. And uh, as mankind increases, there's an increase in division, in hatred, and in murder. All of the consequence of our rejection of God. But turn on with me to chapter 12, which is on page 13. Because here we see an opportunity of friendship with God... A a way of this fractured relationship beginning to be repaired. And it's being repaired on the basis of believing. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here God is opening the door of the possibility of friendship with Abraham. Notice it is God who makes the move to restore the relationship. We can't initiate this. It is God who must initiate it with us. And that's what he does. He, he moves in to, to begin to restore what was destroyed by sin. And what does God do to enable this to happen? What does God give Abraham to restore this relationship? Is it a backstage pass to get Abraham back into Eden? No. Is it instructions on how to build a temple? Well, no. Is it a list of laws? No. What is it? He gives him a promise. He gives him a promise. A promise of God, what God will unilaterally do for him. It's a covenant. That's what the word promise means. And it's an amazing promise. What is contained in this promise is nothing less than what we're going to eventually call the kingdom of God when Jesus bursts on the stage of history. God's people in God's place enjoying his blessing. And so what must Abraham do? to grasp hold of, of this hand of friendship. God extends his hand of friendship in a promise. What must he do? Well, he must believe the promise. Genesis 15, 6 says this, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. God initiates this relationship again, makes a promise, and Abraham grabs hold of this, by faith, he believes it. And so the Bible describes Abraham as the friend of God in James chapter 2 because he believed God. That's the basis of friendship, isn't it? Um, that's the very essence of it to trust one another, to believe one another. And so it is through this man that God will now fulfill his purpose for the whole of mankind. The promise of, promise of family, descendants will come true, the family will become a tribe and a race and a nation. And as they do that, they will continue trusting God and his promises in order to be the people of God. To be part of the people of God, you had to be a believer like Abraham. You had to believe the promises of God. And as the Old Testament unfolds from Genesis 12 onwards, God is in the business of gathering people like Abraham. There's so much history contained, isn't there, in this book here. But really, you could, you could gather it all around two themes. The theme of gathering... And scattering, gathering, and scattering. Let's think about gathering. Onto my favourite book at the moment, Exodus, Exodus chapter six. Jumping ahead, getting a taster for a few weeks' time. Page sixty-two. Um, the story of Exodus is the story of God achieving a great rescue mission to bring a people to Himself to create a people around himself at Sinai. And he's announcing this rescue in advance in chapter 6, this great act of salvation that will call a people to himself. Look at verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And what's the end purpose of this great act of salvation? Look at verse 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. See, the climax of the Exodus account comes when the redeemed nation of Israel are constituted to be the people of God at Sinai. And they hear God's word, and what do they have to do? Believe it. Respond to it in faith. That's what makes them His people. As God puts it in Exodus chapter 19, His treasured possession, they become His treasured possession amongst all the peoples to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what makes Israel truly God's people is that they are gathered or churched around God. And how can they continue being gathered around God? I mean, they're gathered around a mountain where God is present and speaks His words. What happens? Well, Moses is given the uh, details for building a tabernacle. They're, they're going around in tents. God says, "I'm going to go around with you in a tent. You build me a tent, and it'll be in the center of the camp." and you will camp around that tent whenever you stop as a symbol that I am your God, and you are my people, and, 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 and we're going to go on this wilderness journey together. And then it goes on into the land, doesn't it? And, this, and the instructions of the temple, they are going to be God's people in the land as they, as they fulfill the building of the temple, and as they fulfill the sacrifice of the temple. God will be present amongst them. He has gathered a people to himself. Now, the other side of this theme is the theme of scattering and judgment. See, if God's salvation is gathering a people to himself, judgment is about being scattered from God and his blessings. So let's turn on to Jeremiah chapter 18, page 777. Sounds like a perfect number. 777. Jeremiah 18. And look at verse 13. Actually, it's on 776. No, 18. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verse 13. It is on page 777. There we go. 18, verse 13. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever cease to flow? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths and on roads not built up. Their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads like a wind from the east. I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. And this, of course, is exactly what happened. God persistently warned His people that their idolatry was bringing judgment upon them. They needed to repent and turn to worship the true and living God, but they refused to turn. And so God does the opposite of rescue. Judgment of scattering to the nation, scattering away from the land, to be away from God's presence, to lose the land, to lose the temple, to lose even the presence of God Himself is to actually cease to be the people of God. God. Once you were my people, but now you're not going to be my people, says in Hosea. Scattered, spread. And in Ezekiel, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. This theme of um, gathering and scattering gets a little twist. Because God shows his willingness to shift his presence in both judgment and mercy. Ezekiel sees a vision of God's throne on, on wheels departing from Jerusalem as an act of judgment and moving to the exiles in Babylon. And here we see uh, the mercy of the possibility of being God's people once again even though you're far away from the land and far away from a destroyed temple because you can truly be God's people when when you're gathered around God Himself. And that's what God does as His throne moves to Babylon. Look at uh, verse 14 of chapter... Eleven. The word of the Lord came to me. This is page 838. Page 838. Ezekiel 11, verse 14. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore, say... This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they've gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Despite the judgment, the hope is that once again he will gather his people. And uh, really, this, this history that we've covered takes a lot of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the, the majority of the Old Testament is the, is the promise of exile and being the, the, the threat of exile and the exile taking place. And by the end of the Old Testament, and especially in the Hebrew, the way the Hebrew scriptures finish the Old Testament, they're still in exile out of the lands. They are still spiritually far off. That's the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. I think 2 Chronicles is the last book, if I remember correctly. And so, as we come to the New Testament, we see this pattern in the Old Testament, gathering a salvation, scattering for judgment. So, of course, what does Jesus do when he's sent by God to be the savior of his people? He gathers the people. Just turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, that's page 1002. 1002. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark is announcing the gospel, the good news. And the good news is, uh, as he quotes the prophets of Isaiah and Malachi, is that God is bringing an end to the exile. That's the significance of using these quotes. That God is coming. There's a messenger coming who's going to prepare the way for God. And after that messenger, who's John the Baptist, God is going to come. So how does God come? He comes through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And how does Jesus end the exile? Does he start a military campaign? No. Does he complete the rebuilding of the temple It still wasn't finished then? No. Look at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news the gospel what jesus does to gather people to himself is call them to repent and believe he calls on people to follow him he and his gospel are at the center of the gathering of god's people we could chase that theme all the way through we don't have time but we see just at the, in chapter 1 alone, he calls disciples who will g- also go out with this uh, gospel about Jesus to gather more people around Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 17, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, uh, to uh, Simon and Andrew, Come, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. So God's aim of creating a people to belong to him, a treasured possession, a holy nation, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God's people are not defined by who is Jewish or who occupies the promised land. They're defined as those who are gathered by Jesus. God is calling people to follow Jesus and to gather in his name, to gather around him, to be his special people. And those gathered by Jesus and around Jesus, the New Testament calls, what is it called? Church, it's called church. Just checking you with me. You're really not. I've lost you. We're talking about church tonight. What is a church? God's aim is to gather a people around himself by the gospel, a people who meet with the Lord Jesus through his word, by his spirit. That's what's going on. And, and God achieves this aim through the gospel. Do you you see in that sweep how central the church is in God's purposes? There there have been views out there that have just seen the the church as kind of a a little sideline in God's purposes. Things didn't quite work out. It's a temporary thing, but there's a bigger thing. No, actually, if we, we follow through the whole theme of the Bible, this is God's big theme from the very beginning. We were created by God to relate with him. Uh, we've rebelled and yet God in His grace has, has begun to hold out the possibility of relationship through promise and we're called to believe that and God has been gathering people to Himself who will believe His covenant promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ this is what God is doing in the world gathering a people from every kindred, tongue and tribe to Himself and the only thing that will be left standing when all the judgment comes will be the church this is what God is doing In the world and the good news about Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we could never live who died in the place of sinners so that we could be forgiven is that as we repent and trust him alone for the forgiveness of sins and believe his gracious promises then we are people who become friends with God are drawn into relationship with him and with each other people who trust his covenant promises and when the people respond to the gospel a church is formed John Stott uh, writes commenting on, uh, on Acts two forty seven. he says this of that verse and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved that's the verse and he makes his comment he didn't add them to the church without saving them and he didn't save them without adding to the church salvation and church membership went together they still do start rights the preaching of the gospel results in the formation of churches i'm actually on to my third point now the second point was so quick there are. let's go put, just, there's a second point on to the third point oh no On to the third point just like that god's achievement let's just consider how the word church is used in the bible the word church in the Bible is a very ordinary word. Uh, the word ecclesia uh, is, is a simple secular meaning. It just means meeting, gathering, assembly. In fact, in Acts 19, there is a violent, angry mob screaming for the Apostle Paul's blood in the Roman amphitheater in Ephesus. And the word used for this little get-together is ecclesia. These vicious hoodlums are gathered together and they're not singing Amazing Grace. But that's a church. Church just means gathering together. And when the New Testament uses the word church, it does so in two main ways. As a a description of the gathering of God's people, it uses it in two ways. Firstly, to describe a meeting, a, a local earthly gathering of Christian believers that meets in a particular place, a city or a home. So First Corinthians starts off in this way: "To the church of God in Corinth," or Romans sixteen five: "Greet also the church that meets at their house," um, just that local gathering. But the second use of the word, uh, the same word, is to describe a heavenly congregation of all God's people from every place and every age. And there are a number of places that seem to use the word church to denote that. All of God's people throughout the world, and both dead and alive. You've got Matthew 16:18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or think about Ephesians 5:25: Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For her. This is where the Bible gets quite challenging. I mean, if you've read through Revelation, you've got to chapter 7, you've got to this great multitude that Noah can count from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we tend to think of that as something that will just go on in the future. But as you read the Bible, the Bible wants us to see ourselves as a people who are already there, that we're already gathered. Um, see this meeting today I mean it's a public gathering anyone can turn up and we're glad of that but to say that you are part of the church of Christ is to say that your life has been changed by the work of Christ his death and resurrection merely turning up today and being in this building doesn't mean you're part of the church although as I say again we're thrilled that you're here if you're not a Christian but to be part of the church is to have accepted by faith what Christ has done and to receive it for yourself. And then you are part of the spiritual gathering around Christ, not just in the future, but now. See, this physical meeting is an expression of the meeting in heaven that if you're trusting Christ, we are already a part of. So turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter... 10. Let's look there quickly first. Hebrews 10, that's page 1208. 1208. 1208. Hebrews 10, verse 25. This is, the, this is a real focus on the local gathering here. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And then turn over to chapter 12, and we get this mind blowing bigger picture of what happens when we gather together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 on page 1211. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. gathering and that is why you gather in a local gathering like this that's the primary thing actually because you're part of that you will then become part of a local expression like charlotte chapel church is the gathering of god's people who have been saved now heaven is all about this uh, the gathering of people in relationship with god and with each other And hell is about God's judgment and separation and scattering of people from God and from each other. So in conclusion, let's think about that definition again. The church is the gathering of God's people in order to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with one another. If you want a shorter statement, church is God's people gathered by the gospel. I like it shorter myself. God's people gathered by the gospel. There is no church unless God's people are gathered. So, that there is a religious looking building with people wearing religious outfits is no guarantee. That there is a real church. The church is not about buildings. The church is not about large numbers. It is not defined by having a pastor or a bishop or a pope. It is not defined by meeting at a certain time. It is not defined by its relationship to other churches or denominations. It is defined by the presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel by his spirit. And where Christ is present in that way, there is a church. When people gather to meet with Christ in God's Word, by His Spirit, there is a church. And it could happen anywhere. And only when people are gathered by the gospel of Jesus Christ is there a real church. I hope there's nobody here today who thinks that you're right with God simply because you turn up here at this building on a regular basis. You need to respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Your confidence should not be that you were a member of this church. That you were baptized by one of the great and good pastors of the past. Your confidence should only be in this. That you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you are, of course you want to gather with his people. Church is about people. Do you see as we take the sweep of the whole Bible that we need to take relationships seriously? Our society really doesn't get this. We are uh, getting an increasingly fragmented society that's focused on the individual. And, And yet, if we understand the Bible, we need to see the importance of relationships this is what God in His very being is about. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. The world values activity, not fellowship, self fulfillment, not service of others. But Christianity is undeniably corporate. The Bible knows nothing about God's people not gathering together with other Christians. That postmodern quote at the start of Barner's book, those guys are simply living in disobedience to the Christ that they say they're following. To be committed to, the, to gospel relationships with other fellow believers is, 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 is central to God's plans and purposes in the world. To neglect the church of Christ is to reject the very purpose for which Christ came, to gather a people To God, to the praise of his name. See, to to not be a member who regularly attends a specific congregation means one of three things, basically. It means either you're an unbeliever, fair dues, don't expect it. Number two, you're unwell, that happens, doesn't it? Number three, you're being disobedient. Those are the only three reasons. And we show what we really believe in our actions, so my friend if you're not a Christian here today can I just say you're missing out on life life is about knowing what it is to relate to the living God and be in uh, redeemed relationships with others that's what life is about come to Christ come to know the living God and for us who are Christians if we really believe the gospel and and what God's great plan is in history then we will commit to active, meaningful membership of this church or another gospel church if you're visiting. Uh, And what I want to say to you is commit to attendance. That's the very essence of what it means to be church, to gather together. And and commit to attending in a way that looks for ways to love and serve fellow believers. Don't come to church just sort of say, Well, I I hope it's going to be good music. I I, I hope it's music I like. Uh, I, I hope the preacher's entertaining or interesting or amusing to me. I hope I don't have to speak it to anybody. Uh, that's missing the point at church, isn't it? In the bulletin this, uh, this week, in the prayer diary, uh, to encourage us to pray this week for pew ministry. Pray for opportunities to meet new people when you sit in the pew this coming week. Pray that your conversation might turn to Jesus. And if they're not a Christian, that you could share the gospel with them. Or if you are a Christian, that you'd be able to share specific encouragements or challenges from your personal Bible reading or from the morning sermon. This is why we gather, isn't it? That's why we gather together. Look for ways by which we can advance this gospel because this is how God will gather a saved community from the whole world. This is what God is doing. Are you on board? Are you part of this? Well, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your grace and mercy that did not leave us in our rebellion and sin, but at great cost to yourself. You sent your beloved Son to die in the place of sinners. Well, Father, we thank you that there at the cross we can receive full forgiveness for our sins. Oh, Father, we want to thank you that there at the cross, we can continue to find grace and strength to love and each other. Lord, we we let each other down. We upset each other. We cause offense. And we thank you that we can come to the cross and find grace to meet uh, our own sin and grace to find love to extend to each other, that we would continue to be a united people who know you and love you and a people who will be a witness to this world by our love for one another. Oh, Father, we thank you for the ways in which we already see this, and we long to see it in greater measure. And so we look to you that uh, you would be glorified in this city because of this local church. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen.